Kennedy, 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 Kennedy for me. <laughs> Too bad he died. Oh my god! Sorry, I d- <laughs> I'm. You know I'm excited. I know you're yeah. excited. Not not about the death, but like I, you know I'm a tragedy whore, and here we are, and like, <laughs> uh, it's messy. It uh, is. I, uh, you're. I'm sorry that you will no longer have your eyesight by the time you're done with this. I'm but stress blind. Yeah, it's a two-parter, guys. Oh. Guys, I could not type fast enough. And that's okay, because Oliver Stone is insane. <laughs> so no, how could you expect anyone but him to keep up with any of this, except I... for me? Yeah, no, that's what I was about to say. What do you mean, anybody? I expect you to keep up with most of this. <sighs> Remember when I did John Adams with, like, little to no notes? Yeah. I still needed him for this, uh-huh. so, you know. Yeah, like... <laughs> so that's how you know this is going to be a deep episode. <laughs> Unclench. I'm going to. It's going to be okay. I'm sorry <laughs> if I come off as frustrated during this recording. It's because she is. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, where we're so exhausted we can't see straight. I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And this week we are talking about part one of Oliver Stone's 1991 dramatization, JFK. Oh, guys, I had one ask this year. Oh, and here it is. Oh. And I am sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love you, dear sister. Welcome to the unofficial main feed segment of Ross's History Corner. I had to do it to him. I had to do it to him again. I know you did. And I love you for it. I understand this is a topic on which you are very learned and very well researched. See our two-parter of Titanic. Yeah, no. (laughs) Or J. Edgar or literally any historical. Lincoln! Lincoln. Lincoln. Yeah, see Lincoln. Go on over to the Patreon and listen to all 500 minutes of coverage of John Adams. Yeah, no, you had John Adams, you had Lincoln, you had J. Edgar, (laughs) and now you're getting your JFK. So, And guys, I promise you, today is going to be filled with a lot of facts, but we are your history guides. And when I say we, I mean mostly Ross. Mostly me. But I am going to be here, and I'm going to be y'all for this episode. And guys, I'm by no means an expert, but I do know a lot about a lot when it comes to this topic. But I mean, I just... Ross, I... I have, I have some strong opinions, and we might disagree, but respectfully. <laughs> respectfully, we will disagree. Because when we get into conspiracy theories, it's a dirty, wormy hole, okay? <laughs> it's a dirty, wormy hole. Before we get started, don't forget, go follow us on Twitter at KickNStream. That's K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at KickingInStreamingPodcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's in November. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet. Folks, want everyone to come and join our little conspiracy watch party. (laughs) Not the conspiracy (laughs) watch party. Ross, tell them about the Patreon. Guys. Things are heating up. It's here. We have long-form content beginning to air for you. Absolutely. Go on over to our Patreon page. You too can be a Little Onion contributor at the $5 level. You get guaranteed two posts a month. It's all of our bonus long-form and television coverage. We'd love to see 
media over there. Guys, we are currently on Patreon covering Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. Mm, mm, High fantasy. The blueprint. This is very deep lore. This is very much our wheelhouse. We have brought on the editing bay, Gavin Paler himself. To be lore whores. Yeah, to be lore whores. (laughs) It's very good content over there right now. Please go check it out just for $5 a month. Introductory front loader is available right now. Yes, it is. So please, please, please go check that out. I, I guarantee you it's it's great content. It was it was fabulous experience for me to sit outside these blankets under which to speak loudly and listen to Ross and Gavin talk about Lord of the Rings. And if you like it, please spread your listening love around. Share with your friends and family. Please and thank you. Oh my goodness, we love you little onions. And thank you for paying for it. (laughs) All right. We have to do this. (laughs) Can you please, like, lighten up? Ross, there's so much information surrounding this incredibly true crime Americana case. Well, you're my prisoner for the next 80 minutes, so... You're right about that. Anyway. If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada you know, then it's Bon Voyage Dino. I mean like permanent. I mean like a bullet in my head, you dig? Does that help you see my problem a little better? Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a flash of light in bushes, and then shots rang out. Don't cloak and dagger stuff, you know. They called it Operation Mongoose gonna be okay, Dave. You just talk to us on the record and we'll protect you. And I guarantee it. You are so naive. You found us in your office. We think the conference room is also above maybe the phones. I'm not cooperating here. I'm not cooperating here. Listen, there's a death wall for me. Are the same people gonna kill us, Pop? Nobody's gonna kill us. Y'all gotta get into your minds how the hell the spooks think. Now, they're not ordinary crooks. Think the unthinkable. Question everything. Now, we're through the looking glass here, people. White is black, and black is white. You don't believe me? All this time, you never believed me. I just want to raise our children and live a normal life. I want my life Today we're talking Oliver Stone. What a wild filmmaker he is. <laughs> His subjects range from the Vietnam War and American politics to musical biopics and crime dramas. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's got four Oscars, so he's by no means an unsuccessful filmmaker. But I also know in the year of our Lord 2023 that an Oscar does not success make. He's got a purple heart. Wait, okay, what? 
Yeah. Oh, no. He was in the 25th Infantry Division in Vietnam. Okay. No wonder he feels so strongly about these things. I get it. I mean, to him, you know, JFK was kind of his... Gen- young generation's tragedy. He was 17 oh. at the time that the president was murdered. Yeah, lots of big feelings. He's also known for subjects like Midnight Express for 1978, Scarface, because he did the screenplay for Scarface. Oh, God, Scarface. And Conan the Barbarian. Okay, Arnold Schwarzenegger. He did Platoon from 1986. He did Born on the Fourth of July from 1989. See, it's not a mystery to me that I'm not familiar with his work, because war movies are not my thing. Yeah, he did uh, Nixon. From 1995, mm, he yeah. did W from 2008, <laughs> and he did and he did Snowden from 2016. Lord. So you can kind of see where his filmmaking's going with everything. <laughs> We're adding the government directly. JFK is considered like one of his biggest projects, even though all the movies I just named have all been pretty hot topics as far as Hollywood goes. So, which is saying something. And you know what, Oliver Stone? Here's what I'll say. This is a great film. It's a good piece of art from a cultural perspective. Gotcha. It is not entirely reliable. That will be my (laughs) refrain throughout. This cannot be your index for facts when it comes to the assassination of JFK. No, that's the thing that I wanted to say here at the top is that obviously this is a very uh, controversial and very well-documented topic and... Or not so well documented topic. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) We will get to it. But, you know, Ross and I are primarily here to discuss the film. And of course, this is also going to be partially Ross's history corner. But the fact remains is that there is so much information about this topic out there on the internet. And while you can't trust all of it, we just guys we can't go into every single rabbit hole this crime was a mess it might be the messiest crime in the whole of the history of the united states <laughs> the mother of all conspiracies as some refer to it and it is it definitely is there are <laughs> so many messy american crimes out there that it truly just does continue to make the point like we will talk at length as to why and we will go through it all but oliver stone should not be the keystone for all of your facts on all of this absolutely fucking not dramatic license is a thing and he qualifies extravagantly so all right guys written by oliver stone himself and uh his writing partner zachary sklar um it's based off two different books one is on the trail of the assassins by jim garrison who is the protagonist and subject of this film Mm. and another novel called crossfire the plot that killed kennedy by jim mars jim mars is a new york times columnist who was an investigative reporter back in the good old days of the good old house assassinations committee and all Uh, that good stuff the good old days the good old day i'm being ironic i know i I know i'm sarcastic i should say (laughs) but you know this film made 160 million dollars i'm sure it did just it came out just before the 30th anniversary of the kennedy assassination which took place in dallas texas on november 22nd 1963 in which we lost the life of our 35th american president john fitzgerald kennedy of massachusetts Kennedy, guys, 
is not the beacon that he is always made out to be. Are you kidding me? Guy was kind of a creep and <laughs> probably a rapist. And mm, I under- and yet Lana Del Rey wrote songs about him. And I understand why he is revered the way he is. He wanted to change, air quote, wanted to change things for the better. And they killed him for it. But like I say they, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to it. All right. Uh, you know I love me a film score. Oh, God. And you know who does it, Carrie? Uh... Mr. John Williams. <laughs> oh. Greatest film composers of all time. Great choice. Great choice, Oliver. Just saying. It's a Christmas movie. Stop. December 20th, 1991. <laughs> Absolutely stop it. I'm sorry. Can you believe there's a director's cut? I can't. It, the because... whole the film in its entirety is already 188 minutes long. Director's cut is 205. Like I can't believe it. I know. And you know, you almost think this is a four-hour movie. It really is just over two hours. But like it felt like so many white men standing around talking. It felt much longer. Obviously, this film is controversial. It's embracement of the conspiracy theories, like. Many, like, a lot of people in the media criticized Stone at the time of its release because it just took way too much of a hard implication that former President Lyndon B. Johnson <laughs> conspired to have his president killed. All but right. Oliver Stone has an agenda here, and it's mostly to get you to think, but it's also kind of, it's the way that Stone presents things as fact in this film because of the way that it's edited. And the editing process was a mess. They shot it with a multitude of different cameras and films. And then when it came time for editing, they decided, all right, we'll just splice everything together and make it look real. That's irra-fucking-sponsible! The amount of recreated footage versus real footage used at the same time in this movie can confuse an uneducated audience. Yeah, to a pair of freaks like you and me, we can mostly discern what is real and what is not, but if you're just a casual moviegoer, you may not be able to discern these things, and that's from no fault of your own, but that's just, I'm sorry, I, uh... here's, Here's more to my point. Nominated for eight Oscars, didn't win Best Picture, but won Best Cinematography and Best Film Editing. All right. Yeah, like... All right. I know, I I know. I'm mad. Can you hear me? I can hear you. (laughs) But critics mostly praise this because of the performances that we have here today. And folks, we have so many returning players here today (sighs) that I cannot give you all of their curriculum vitae. But this film is the story of New Orleans DA Jim Garrison's investigation of the Kennedy assassination. He's the only person to ever bring a criminal trial in relation to the assassination of President Kennedy, which is kind of astounding. But when you think about all the conspiracy theories, maybe not so astounding, you know? No, the word I would use is interesting. Folks, you might have guessed it, but we've got names. Portraying Jim Garrison himself, we have... Mr. Kevin Costner, please welcome him to Kicking and Streaming. <laughs> We're not nice to Kevin Costner a lot of the time, but guys, you know, Field of Dreams, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Wyatt Earp, you know, dad loves that. He loves that Wyatt Earp drama. Like, oh God, Kevin Costner could not act his way out of a wet paper bag. He's Kevin Costner in everything. I know. It, it's George Clooney vibes. He did Yellowstone and Hatfield and McCoy's, and he's also, remember McFarland, USA, that movie? Oh my that God. conservative movie, and of course, guys, the only other, the movie that I have not seen that I want to see with Kevin Costner in it is The Bodyguard, 
Re- I've never seen The Bodyguard before. And, and I know exactly why you want to see it. Because of Whitney Houston. Because of Whitney Houston. <laughs> you know he gave the eulogy at her memorial? I could think of at least three it's other so people. So many better people! <laughs> anyway. Who picked Kevin? <laughs> I, could, I can see Whitney's side eye in heaven when that happened. She's like, Kevin? <laughs> really? Portraying Clay Shaw the center of Jim Garrison's investigation is Tommy Lee Jones. Please welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming. He was with us in the last two-parter we did as Thaddeus Stevens in Lincoln. (laughs) Guys, it's Tommy Lee Jones. You know Men in Black. You know Natural Born Killers. You know No Country for Old Men. Batman forever! Exactly. I I knew you'd you'd have to. I knew you'd have to. (laughs) Portraying Lee Harvey Oswald, the mostly historically agreed-upon assassin of JFK, we have the one, the only, Gary Oldman. I'm sorry, is this his first kicking and streaming appearance? I think so. Oh my god. Corey Collis. Is it Gary Oldman's first time? Uh, Guys, he's quite famously Sirius Black from the Harry Potter saga. All right. His American accent is pretty good. Like, Yeah, no, seriously. He's in a lot of American movies and it's pretty decent. I love that Daniel Radcliffe always says that Gary Oldman's his favorite actor and he was so excited to work with him on Harry Potter. <laughs> Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Fifth Element, The Contender, Leon the Professional. Dracula. Uh-huh. Oh my god. <laughs> We're gonna have to talk that about bad Dracula. bad 94 Dracula. It's not bad. Stop it. This movie isn't stupid. <laughs> You're stupid. Oh, it's from 92, not 94. Okay. <laughs> well, whatever. Portraying Garrison's wife, Liz, we have Sissy Spacek. Please welcome her back. Back to kicking and streaming. She was with us when we did the help. Oh, yeah. Because she's Mrs. Holbrook. Oh, I forgot. I love Sissy Spacek so much. There are two things I can't seem to forget. That my own daughter threw me into a nursing home and that she ate many shit. <laughs> Coal miner's daughter, Carrie. Ugh. We love us some sissy. Sissy that walk. Portraying Garrison's associate, Bill Broussard, we have... Michael Rooker. I think welcome him. To, no, please welcome him back to kicking and streaming because Jesus Christ, he was with us when we covered <laughs> fucking Slither. Which is Ross's to date least favorite coverage we've ever done on this show. He's a James Gunn whore, remember? Yeah. James Gunn puts Michael Rooker in everything. <laughs> and you're also going to know him because he's Merle Dixon from AMC's The Walking Dead. Portraying uh, Garrison's associate, Lou Ivan, we have J.O. Sanders. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he is, he's a voice in Red Dead Redemption. He is. He's, the, I can't remember the name of the character, but I, uh, D.K. McKenna. McKenna D.S. McKenna or whatever. Yeah, the, yeah. the director that wants you to help him capture uh, his uh, dream of the American West in film. He's also one of Dan's buddies on Roseanne. He is. Yeah, he is. He's also in the Morgan Freeman uh, movies like Along Came a Spider and uh, Kiss the Girls. I know him from those. He's in Cadillac Records and Revolutionary Road. Mm Mm-hmm. Portraying Assistant District Attorney Susie Cox, also from Roseanne. Please welcome back Lori Metcalf. She was with us when we covered Toy Story because she's the voice of Andy's mom. <laughs> and of course, she's obviously famously Jackie Harris from Roseanne and a big time Tony winner and Broadway performer, Lori Metcalf. Misery. I, I know. <laughs> Don't you wish you could have seen that? I, I do. 
portraying activist and altogether crazy fuck David Ferry, we have the one and only Joe Pesci. Please welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming. He was, of course, with us when we did our very first episode of Kicking and Streaming. He was, he's Vincent LaGuardia Gambini from My Cousin Vinny, which was our first ever coverage. And then, of course, he was with us because he's Harry from Home Alone and <laughs> Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Yes. So, like, happy fourth or fifth time back with us, Joe. <laughs> we love you. You know Joe Pesci, he's in things, we don't have time. Good fellas. Thank you. <laughs> Portraying Guy Bannister, we have Ed Asner. Please welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming. He was Santa Claus when we covered Elf. <laughs> and then to watch him in this, it's so upsetting. It's two different animals. As Jack Ruby, assassin of Lee Harvey Oswald, we have Brian Doyle Murray. I always think we've covered Groundhog Day, and we haven't. <laughs> but guys, he's the voice of the Flying Dutchman from SpongeBob SquarePants. Caddyshack <laughs> uh, Scrooge. He was uh, in Ghostbusters 2. We have got to cover Groundhog Day next year, so I can stop <laughs> thinking we covered Groundhog Day. Guys, he's Bill Murray's older brother. Like, yes. He is the Randy Quaid to Bill Murray's <laughs> Dennis Quaid. <laughs> portraying Dean Andrews is John Candy. Please welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming. Also from Home Alone. Also from Home Alone. And Little Shop of Horrors. And Little Shop of Horrors. We've got Wayne Knight. And I can't believe we haven't done Jurassic Park yet. Exactly. He plays Numa Bertel, another one of Garrison's associates. Portraying uh, incarcerated male prostitute Willie O'Keefe, who is not a real person, but an amalgamation of a couple of real life people. Oh. We, yeah, we have Kevin Bacon. Hey! They think this is his first time with us at Kicking and Streaming. Oh, wait, no, it's not, because we covered Crazy Stupid Love. That's right, that's right. But guys, A Few Good Men, Mystic River, Apollo 13, Frost Nixon. Footloose! Footloose, yes, of course, Footloose. He is so fine. Stop! I, I, I know, <laughs> he's an awful person in this movie. Um, and then, guys, as uh, Guy Bannister's associate Jack Martin, we have Jack Lemon. But also, as Senator Russell B. Long, we have Walter Matthau. We have both halves of the odd couple with us today. And grumpy old men. <laughs> <laughs> Some like it hot. I, with Marilyn Monroe, I lover of JFK. Ross, I love everything about that. I know. I will also mention two others. Uh, Bieta Posniak plays Marina Oswald. Mm -hmm. And then we have Jim Garrison himself portrays Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Earl Warren. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I missed that. Jim Garrison worked heavily on this movie. Yeah, he was a producer or some sort or mm -hmm. a consultant or something like that. Maybe a technical advisor. Sometimes that's what they call them. Which, I mean, hey, I'm all for a director giving the subject of a story license to tell the story. But, you know, it's also based on his book, so... I will, in a busybody type manner, remind you of one other person. Mm. That is our opening narrator. Oh my God, how could I, Gary? <laughs> how could I? <laughs> the narrator for our prologue is the one, the only, Martin Sheen. 
please welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming because we covered the pilot of the West Wing. Because he's President Josiah Bartlett. Your president. My president. (laughs) He's a neoliberal hack, but (laughs) I do love him. (laughs) Also, Martin Sheen has played JFK a time or two. Absolutely. (laughs) No, in the Goonies. Goonies. Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen, that's President Kennedy, you idiot. Well, same difference. He played Kennedy once. All right, guys, we're going to have more names for you when we do part two. And there are some other actors I've left out of here, but we really just do not have the time. We really don't. We have to get to the content. And Carrie, when we begin with that Warner Brothers logo Mm -hmm. and those John Williams drums. Oh, God. And some on-screen text. To sin by silence when we should protest makes cowards of men. From American poet Ella Wheeler Wilcox. I wrote, oh God, this is going to be a preachy mess. We have Martin Sheen narrating our prologue sequence, giving us the major exposition for this entire subject. Bear with me here. (laughs) Welcome to Ross's History Corner. In the very beginning, we hear the voice of President Eisenhower, who is Kennedy's predecessor. He's warning Americans of the dangers of the development of the military-industrial complex. Oh! And what we say, he gives it in his farewell address to the nation in January 1961. And what he's basically warning us against is to not allow government to be so entangled with defense contractors that people no longer elect people, but money does. And that's exactly (laughs) where we have ended up today i wrote uh oh 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 we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought by the military industrial complex we must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes november 1960 Senator John Fitzgerald Kennedy of Massachusetts wins one of the narrowest election victories in American history over the Vice President Richard Nixon by a little more than 100,000 votes. Kennedy is a symbol of the new freedom in the 1960s. Indeed, indeed. And to a certain extent, I don't disagree with that. He's younger, he's more hip, he he knows what the kids are looking forward to, which is peace and not so much war. Their generation had been completely torn apart by the Second World War. He's also promising more rights to black people. There were so many things that were tied up in the imagery of Kennedy as the future of America. But guess what? There's always problems. (laughs) Of course. Kennedy inherits a secret war that was being waged by the Central Intelligence Agency against Cuba. Because what is Cuba heavy with? Communism, Marxism, Leninism. Fidel Castro had taken over Cuba in this communist regime. And the CIA is like, no, we love capitalism. Oh, we love making money. Let's keep Castro at bay. We love that tea of capitalism. Like, it's run by the CIA and angry Cuban exiles because Castro being such a successful revolutionary is frightening to American business interests in Latin America, and it all culminates in the Bay of Pigs invasion in April 1961. Not the 
Bay of Pigs. I did a book report on Kennedy. I bet. When I was in like the fifth grade and I remember reading about the Bay of Pigs and I went, oh, John. And Kennedy at the last second decides not to provide air cover for the exiled Cuban brigade that's going to attack Castro. Whoops. He takes responsibility for the failure, but claims that the CIA lied to him to get him to invade Cuba. Which? Which is entirely probably true who knows i i mean probably i agree with you he the see i hate the cia and this all comes to the brink of disaster with the cuban missile crisis because cuba announces that the soviets have missiles like less than 90 miles away from american shores <laughs> very uncomfortably close and so jfk cuts a secret deal with khrushchev who was the russian leader at the time not to invade cuba in exchange for returning the missiles to russia and this all of a sudden creates this campaign to discredit Kennedy because he's air quote soft on communism all right no he just didn't Kennedy was a capitalist don't let anyone try to convince you (laughs) like he just didn't want to start a war that they didn't need to start in Cuba but this further embroils him in Laos it further embroils him in Vietnam when he's like when he says that quote what kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war we must re-examine our own attitudes towards the Soviet Union. Our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. We see this footage of this woman, bloody and beaten, being thrown out of a car onto the side of a dusty road. It's all cut together with this footage of President Kennedy's 1963 tour of the state of Texas. We're going up to Dallas. Friday. They're gonna kill Kennedy. Call someone and stop them. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the way they splice this film footage with archival footage. This well, is, it's easy to tell the difference. Uh, again, I think we said at the top that, yeah, you and I can tell the difference, but well, like, it's... So can most people, you know? But this is a trend throughout the film, right? Exactly, exactly. Like, uh, this is the beginning of that, and I'm not a fan of it, and Oliver, just, God, settle down. Kennedy was going to Texas in November 1963 to kick off campaign season. It was time to start preparing for the 1964 presidential election. And Lyndon Johnson, his vice president, was from Texas. And so the Democrats need a bit of a boost in a growing conservative state. Would you believe that Texas was dominated by the Democratic Party for decades? I mean, yes, actually. Before the era of Nixon. Like, Mm -hmm. you get to the 70s and Texas becomes severely more Republican after that. Oh, no. I'm overly familiar with the flight of voters from the north to the south in the era of Nixon. uh, John John Connolly was the governor of Texas. He was a Democrat, and he was on this tour with the Kennedys going around Texas to kick off campaign season. His image needed a dramatic boost in the south. President and Mrs. Kennedy traveled with Governor Conley and his wife in a motorcade throughout downtown Dallas. They were on their way to visit the Dallas Trademark, where he was due to speak at one o'clock. And they had almost made it their entire way through their route. The streets were 
packed, as we all know Democrats do better in cities <laughs> than they do in rural areas, especially in Texas. The turnout was very surprising. They were accompanied by a Republican senator, Ralph Yarborough. He was the senator from the state of Texas. Also, Vice President Johnson and Mrs. Johnson were in the motorcade as well. Everyone was stunned by the crowds. It had rained that morning. It was such a beautiful day. And then we get to Dealey Plaza. In order to get onto the interstate correctly, they have to take a right through Dealey Plaza onto Houston Street and then a left onto Elm Street, going directly in front of what was known as the Texas School Book Depository. Directly ahead is the Stemmons Freeway exit to where they can get onto the freeway to arrive at the Dallas Trademark on time. It's like a triple overpass. And it is where Kennedy's car passes in front of the memorial in Dealey Plaza, right by the good old grassy knoll, right before the freeway exit, that John F. Kennedy's life is ended by an assassin's bullet. We immediately transition that same day into New Orleans Parish with District Attorney Jim Garrison. What's wrong, sir? Boss, the president's been shot in Dallas five minutes ago. Oh, no. How bad? There's no word yet, but they think it's in the head. So they head on over to Napoleon's, right? They got a TV so they can watch television coverage there. Oh, Napoleon's is a bar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's in this bar. <laughs> no one can go home yet. We've got to go to the bar. They announced his death. News anchor Walter Cronkite's is most famous. Oh, that famous footage is so great. The way that he announces Kennedy's been shot and... Then he takes his glasses off. Yeah, he takes his glasses off and like he's choked up for a second. Mm -hmm. He's like, uh, Vice President Johnson, you know, like I feel for him in that moment. Kennedy was very divisive. Not everyone is mourning Mm. when that guy's like clapping after they just announced the president died. Sorry, bastard. You know, he was kind of divisive in the way Obama was divisive. You know, if you were just a real you weren't going to agree with this man being president. (laughs) Like he was, that's why I said he wasn't the beacon everyone made him out to be. He was a rich white abuser, but like most of the nation was very shocked and devastated. And, but not everyone was so sad because in a different bar, we meet one guy Bannister who is a private investigator in new Orleans. He's also a former policeman and FBI agent. Yeah. And he's talking very harshly with his, his friend and associate, Jack Martin. This is Ed Asner and Jack Lemon. <laughs> Poor Jack Martin is just sitting there listening to this drunk old cop not exactly lament about the loss of President Kennedy. That's what happens when you let the niggers vote. They get together with the Jews and the Catholics. They elect an Irish bleeding heart. Uh, Chief, now maybe you had a little too much to drink. Bullshit. Here's the new frontier. Camelot and Smithereens. I'll drink to that. Bannisters, an old school fuck. Yeah, you don't have to be so evil, guy. But like, you didn't have to. On TV, they see the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald, who was announced on the news because he was accused of murdering a police officer, J.D. Tippett, shortly after the assassination in a Dallas suburb. Mm. He was captured at the Texas Theater in Dallas in a showing of War is Hell. From the, 1961. The 
irony cannot be written. It really can't. I tell you what. Also, he was captured in a theater? Yeah, I know. Reminds me of another assassination. Oh my god, Lincoln! <laughs> what the fuck? Well, Wilkes was captured in a tobacco barn. But... Stop! Sorry, not what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, he denies shooting the officer and also President Kennedy... We see Guy and Jack returning to Guy's office, and just because his filing cabinets are open, Guy immediately starts accusing his good friend Jack of going through his files and sharing information with people he shouldn't be sharing it with. Which, you know what? Guy, you're a drunk and probably opened it and forgot that you left it open. He kn- And he's like, I know all you witnessed at my office, and proceeds to pistol whip him almost damn near to death. It is your goddamn thing, you hear me, you little weasel? It is your goddamn thing! The toxic men in this era, that's partially why I trust nothing that I hear about this. This is the real madmen right here. I cannot! We see Oswald being interrogated on television, which is very suspicious, so quickly after the assassination. He was questioned on TV before being formally charged with either murder, either Tippett or Kennedy. Have you ever known a suspect to get a press conference before being formally charged? And also allegedly denied a lawyer. Yeah, it wasn't allowed legal representation, was questioned for 12 hours, and none of it was written down. Mmm, suspicious. He says he doesn't know what the situation is, no one has told him anything except he's accused of murdering a policeman and he's asking on tv for legal assistance (laughs) and this is good recreation of the actual footage yeah gary oldman's oswald is a little different but like it's still (laughs) effective i protested at that time i was uh, not allowed a legal representation during that uh a very short and sweet hearing um I, uh, I I really don't know what this situation is about. Nobody has told me anything except that I'm accused of um, murdering a policeman. When Garrison's watching TV at home, watching the press conference, he seems pretty cool to me for a man under pressure like that. I think that's a good point. He was 24 years old. Yeah, you're 27 at this point. I know. Would you react this cool under pressure? I can't even imagine. Exactly. The narrative is quickly that Oswald is fascinated by communism, that he's a Marxist and is not to be trusted. He's very pro-Castro, very pro-Cuba. And Jim Garrison hops on the phone with his associates and says, we need to hop on Oswald's New Orleans connections right away because Oswald was actually partially raised in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. It's kind of where he's from. And law enforcement is saying that they have reason to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that Oswald is the assassin. That night, they discover in the Texas School Book Depository the Italian Manlooker Carcano rifle that was used in the assassination. They had Oswald nitrate tested. They had him fingerprinted. And, you know, Garrison's investigator, Lou, brings up on that Sunday, the 24th, uh, two days after the assassination, the connection between the possible connection between Oswald and this character, David Ferry. David Ferry and his eyebrows are here. Yes, exactly. God. He's got such a bizarre appearance, dude. And like, you know what? I felt like an asshole later. Because you were like, what's with the wig? And then you realized the character had cancer. Yeah. And (laughs) that also leads me to believe that his eyebrows are drawn on by someone who has never been properly instructed on how to draw on your eyebrows. We'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) Guys, they watch Oswald's assassination on live television. That's 
world! Along, along with the rest of the nation. Shot him on TV. Just shot him. Oh my God. There's a man with a gun. There's absolute. So many cops in that bitch. What the hell were they doing? No now. And you know what? I can't remember the name of the guy who actually filmed Jack Ruby killing Oswald, but that guy won a Pulitzer Prize for photography. For that... For capturing the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald? Which I just think is kind of gross. Anyhow... They were moving Oswald from one location to another. They were in the basement of a parking garage. And when they led Lee Harvey Oswald in front of the cameras to do the great big perp walk, a nightclub owner from Dallas named Jack Ruby walked right up to Oswald and shot him in the stomach. There's 70 cops around. What were they doing? The prime suspect is now dead. Yeah. And no trial now. What does Lou say? Someone just say the Dallas DA a buttload of work or whatever oh my he says. God. I love all their accents. <laughs> They're from Louisiana, you know. <laughs> but Garrison wants Ferry brought in right away. And so the next day, Monday, which is the day of the state funeral mm. for John F. Kennedy, Monday the 25th of November, Lyndon Johnson is president now. He's committing himself very quickly to the reignition of the Vietnam effort. Because that doesn't wait for mourning. No. Like, like literally, he was sworn in less than an hour after the president died on Air Force One with yeah. his wife standing right next to him in her bloody dress. And, like, yeah. David Ferry is shown into Garrison's office. Oh, it's Joe Pesci. And oh, he looks cartoonish. Oh, no. Yeah, Garrison basically starts cross-examining him in his office. Well, he's interrogating him, yes. like, But, like, it's clear that this guy is lying. He's nervous. He's very nervous. He's questioning about being a pilot and what he did over the weekend. And he's asked if... He knows Oswald, and he denies knowing him at all, Ferry does. And Garrison says, you know, he served in your Air Patrol unit when he was in the Marine Corps. <laughs> and he's like, I've never seen him before in my life after being shown his picture yet again. He is the Mariah Carey gif. I don't know her. Yeah. <laughs> Garrison says, oh, that must have been mistaken information. We're so sorry about that. But, you know, we did frequent some establishments and met a couple of your friends and said that you took a trip to Texas shortly before the assassination on Friday. This comedically not well rehearsed alibi. Oh, no, yeah, we went goose hunting or duck hunting or no, whatever. No, you're forgetting that he first says that he hadn't been ice skating in <laughs> a very long time. In Texas? So him and his young friends went to <laughs> Houston to go ice skating and then drove all the way to Galveston to go goose hunting. But there were no firearms in the car? Your young friends also told us you had no weapons in the car, Dave. Isn't it a bit difficult to hunt for geese without a shotgun? Uh -huh. Yes, I remember now. I'm sorry, Mr. Garrison, I got confused. We got out near the geese, and only then did we realize we had forgotten our shotguns. <laughs> Stupid, right? I'm sorry this has to end inconveniently for you, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to detain you for further questioning by the FBI. <laughs> Why? What's wrong? Dave, I find your story simply not believable. <laughs> really? What part? <laughs> he's being let out of the room, and he's like, what part? What, what part didn't you like? They turn him over to the FBI. Who immediately let him go. Yeah, and the thing is, is that the FBI is immediately 
trying to distance themselves from Garrison. They're like, no, the DA brought him in, not us. We are not associated with this, quote, suspect at this time. And Garrison seeing them mouth off on television is like, okay, I'm putting this to bed. But only for three years. Oh my god, no, that's the thing. We get like a three-year time jump. And like when he's like walking out of the office and we hear them announcing the commission to investigate the death of the president, Mm -hmm. which will become known as the The Warren Warren Commission. Commission. And therefore, the Warren Report, which was released on my birthday, 1964. Oh, happy birthday. I hate it. I hate sharing (laughs) a birthday with the Warren Report. This next scene on the plane between Jim Garrison and Senator Long, Walter Matthau, is one of my favorites, at least in this first half of the film. They're discussing the state of things. Johnson's got them further embroiled into Vietnam, and there's no end in sight. Things have gone pretty far downhill since John F. Kennedy. And, like, guys, I just love the way that Southern people talk sometimes. I've got three examples, may I? Mm -hmm. Because there's great ones in this scene. First of all... Senator Long is telling Garrison, you know what? I don't believe the Warren Commission at all. I believe that the Warren Commission was, quote, picking gnat shit out of pepper. (laughs) That's great. He doesn't believe in the idea of Oswald as a lone shooter because according to his uh, Marine buddies, Oswald wasn't a good shot because he, quote, had Maggie's drawers. Mm. He was a bad shot. That's misogynistic, but I just love the way it's uh, worded. And then my personal favorite, when he describes the theory of that pristine bullet, right? Yeah. Average man would be lucky to get two shots off. And I tell you, the first shot would always be the best. Here, the third shot's perfect. Then they got that crazy bullet zigzagging all over the place, so it hits Kennedy and Connolly seven times. One pristine bullet, that dog don't hunt. (laughs) Guys, here's the first thing I'd like to dispel for you. This movie is constantly claiming that Lee Harvey Oswald was at best a medium shot. Lee Harvey Oswald was a very good shot. In his Marine Corps evaluation, he tested higher than the amount of bullets he had. I mean, okay, I don't know from these things. I'm just fixated on that dog don't hunt. Well, well, I'm trying to tell you, this film keeps telling you that he's not a good shot. Oswald was a very good shot. Okay, all right, fine. I literally have to believe you. Well, why wouldn't you? Like, you've done so much more research on this than I have. I'm, oh my God. But to your point, this is the beginning of Oliver Stone bending over backwards to point out everything that was, quote, flawed about this initial investigation and the Warren Commission. No, yeah, that's the thing. Garrison is starting to think long and hard about this. And Liz, Garrison's wife, her whole life is about to be upended in a way she doesn't even understand. I feel so much for this woman. I mean, I get it, but I feel like her character is just kind of symbolic of the how... You know, the lily white people don't want their little worlds to be rocked by the fact that your government is capable of depraved, depraved things. Like, well, Not to mention the fact that her domestic life is also about to be upended. Like, I love how they're sitting at the dinner table. And Garrison's reading the Warren Report. He's basically reading the Warren Report. He's dumping everything about this on his family. He's not eating the dinner she's prepared. He's, he's feeding, feeding it, it to, to the, the dog, dog while, she, while he's talking. Yeah. <laughs> And again, credible testimony is ignored. Leads are never followed up. It's conclusion selective. 
There's no index. It's one of the sloppiest, most disorganized investigations I've ever seen. You know, dozens and dozens of witnesses in Dealey Plaza that day are saying they heard shots coming from the grassy knoll area in front of Kennedy, not the book depository behind him. But it's all broken down and spread around, and you read it, and the point gets lost. When Liz is like, honey, that was three years ago. We've tried to put it all behind us, but you keep digging it up again. No, he's starting to get obsessed. He's going over every scrap of paper he can get his hands on from the Warren report and the original investigation. He's reading the testimony of this man named Lee Bowers, who managed a rail yard behind the school book depository in Dealey Plaza, about how he saw three different vehicles drive around the lot just before the assassination as though they were checking on something, like looking at the area. He also said he saw two men who looked like maintenance workers standing behind the fence that was on the grassy knoll in Dealey Plaza. And, I mean, there were probably people watching from behind that fence. People worked back in that lot. And then, yeah, there's the hobo thing, which we don't really need to get too much into. I think it's a non-thing. Like, these supposed transients that were being shepherded around Dallas and keeping the police busy, like... Who were allegedly not actually transients. Look it up. Yeah. He, he said he could, like, Lee Bauer says he could tell when the assassination happened because he didn't see it, obviously. He wasn't looking on the plaza, but he saw the commotion of people afterwards running up to the fence and coming behind the fence. And, like, when when Jim wakes up in the middle of the night oh my bitching God. to Liz about how there's no reason Lee Harvey Oswald should have tested in the Russian language in the Marine Corps. She's so sick of his ass. Like, and what he's saying is, why would they teach Oswald Russian unless they were training him for intelligence? I have five kids going to be awake in an hour. In I never knew a single man who was given a Russian test. Oswald was a radar operator. He'd, he'd have about as much use for, for Russian as a cat has for These pajamas. books have gotten to your mind. Oswald about has as much use for Russian as a cat has for pajamas. <laughs> I God damn it. Says Garrison. Again, the way y'all Southerners talk sometimes. Damn it, I've been sleeping for three years. My eyes are open, or whatever he says. And on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. This is unhinged. Garrison summons Bill and Lou to meet him around the corner of Lafayette and Camp. They come to the old offices of Guy Bannister, Scary Ed Asner from earlier, yeah. who pistol whipped Jack Lemon almost to death. This is where Guy Bannister comes back into the narrative because Garrison has discovered that there may be a connection between him and Oswald. The building where Bannister's private eye office used to be, he's deceased now, but where it used to be, serves as two separate addresses because it sits on the corner at an intersection and contains two front doors around the corner from each other, right? Now take a look here. 544 Camp Street. 531 Lafayette Street. Same building, right? but with different addresses and different entrances, both going to the same place, to the office upstairs. Guess who used this address? Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald used one of those addresses on the leaflets he used to hand out as pro-Castro propaganda, right? Exactly, in the summer of 62. And he was very notably attacked by anti-Castro Cubans for handing out those leaflets. Like, he gets arrested from that altercation and in jail meets with an FBI agent who promptly destroys all his notes from that interview. Uh, see? Is it the 
details. I'm aware. I'm aware. That make you question everything. Of course it does. Of course it does. And the arrest gets enough publicity to have Oswald appear on television, which he actually did. Yeah. Garrison also points out that across the street in the now post office is the old headquarters of the Office of Naval Intelligence, where Guy Bannister worked before he was in the FBI. Yeah, and it's not just the Office of Naval Intelligence. There's a bunch of other alphabet soup offices the either currently either currently existing or formerly existing very close to that former PI office. The FBI, the CIA, and the Secret Service all have branches down at that <laughs> intersection. This Doesn't this seem like a strange place for a communist to spend his spare time? <laughs> I get it, Jim. I get it. I do agree that it's kind of a leap, but it's hard not to make those connections. What you driving at, boss? We're going back into the case, Lou. Murder of the president. Good Lord, wake me up. I must be dreaming. No, you're awake, Bill, and I'm deadly serious. We're going to start by tracking down your anonymous source from three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jim Garrison is about to drag not only his current associates, but his former associates on a years-long journey that will have them all regretting it, I'm sure, by the end. Lou and Jim meet with Jack Martin, Guy Bannister's old friend. He's still alive. <laughs> uh, because they've heard through the grapevine that on the night of the assassination, Guy tried to almost pistol whip Jack to death. And they want to know what that's about. <laughs> they think there might be a connection there. There might be merits a follow-up. This wasn't over something minuscule like a shared phone bill. There's more to it than that. How much more? I don't think I should talk about it. Well, I'd ask Guy. We were friendly, you know. Heart attack, wasn't it? Well, you buy what you read in the papers. You have other information? I didn't say that. You have that. other information? I didn't say that. All I know is that he died suddenly, just before the Warren report came out. Why did God beat you, Jack? And he's, like, all silent. And they very slowly get Jack to divulge the story surrounding Guy Bannister and something called Operation Mongoose. Not Operation Mongoose. They could have picked any other name. I know, I, I, I understand. <laughs> it was a paramilitary exercise which Guy Bannister was closely affiliated with in the summer of 1962 before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Jack Martin worked for Guy and would help him out in the office, and there were always Cubans, exiled Cubans coming and going out of the office, and there were anti-Castro activists, and David Ferry is a name mentioned about who was going in and out of there. He was organizing the exiled Cubans to train for an invasion of Cuba to destabilize Castro's regime. And they were stockpiling guns and explosives. And they were all working for the Central Intelligence Agency because, remember, Kennedy inherited the secret CIA war against Castro. The whole idea was they were going to train these Cuban exiles, you know, for another invasion of Cuba. Mm-hmm. Hell, Bannister's office, that, that was part of the supply line, you know, from Dallas through New Orleans to Miami. They were stockpiling arms, explosives. All this right under the noses of the intelligence community in Lafayette Square? Yeah, hell yeah, they, everybody knew everybody, you know, they were all part of the network. They were all waiting for the CIA. There was a huge gun operation between Texas and Louisiana, and Ferry and Guy and Jack were all connected to it. And he says Ferry was the seriously crazy one. Real serious shit. Because the Kennedy administration shut down the operation before the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. So Ferry hates Kennedy for that. Yeah. And makes him a good 
a good figure for this conspiracy. And guys, Oswald was there too. Yeah, Martin admits that Oswald was in their office, kind of in this double agent role, like pretending to be pro-Castro, but then pretending to be anti-Castro. Like, that's why the Cubans were so upset with him, and they started that altercation with him in the street. And this is where we get this name, Clay Bertrand. Right. Oh, God. And the office. Miss Queen. Like this Clay Bertrand character, who is Tommy Lee Jones, because it's actually Clay Shaw, but we don't know that yet. (laughs) Because Clay Bertrand is holding the purse strings in this entire operation. Bankrolling it, yeah. Exactly. He's financially backing the Operation Mongoose. When Garrison presses about Clay Bertrand to Martin, he gets really uncomfortable and decides to end the interview. Oh, no, he leaves. He leaves. Uh, uh, No, that's right. Clay Bertrand. No, no, that's right. He was in the Warren report. He got Oswald a lawyer. Was was Kennedy ever discussed, Jack? I don't know. The assassination, Jack? No. Never. Not with me. Look, I I, I gotta go. That's all I'm gonna say. Hold on, Jack. Hold on. What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? Do I have to spell it out for you, Mr. No, Garrison? Nobody knows what we're talking about here, Jack. Well, you are so naive. His mood changed quickly. Because he knows that Bertrand is the one who got Oswald a lawyer when he was arrested. This is where we come into Dean Andrews, right? Because that's who Garrison sits down with. It's John Candy. Not John Candy. This guy is fried. He's like a character if I've ever seen one. He's got to be eaten, and he's eating all that crab meat while Garrison's trying to talk to him. The way this man is posturing through the first half of this conversation, and then the moment that Garrison starts asking the hard questions, he immediately crumples. He's like... Get out of here, man. <laughs> Dean's testimony does not add up. And Garrison knows he's lying and that he lied in the Warren report because of completely contradictory statements he's given. He's afraid for his life. He knows he knows the true identity of Clay Bertrand. And he just, I love these lines. If I give you the name of the big enchilada, you know, then it's Bon Voyage Dino. I mean, like, pull a minute. I mean, like a bullet in my head, you dig? You're a mouse fighting a gorilla. Kennedy's as dead as that crab meat. The government's still breathing. You want to line up with a dead Keep man? My lips, Dino. Either you dance into the grand jury with the real identity of Claire Bertrand, or your fat behind's going to the slammer. Now you dig me. You're as crazy as your mama. <laughs> Dean stands up. <laughs> You're as crazy as your mama. <laughs> Goes to show it's in the jeans. No. The government's gonna jump all over your head, Jimbo, and go cock a doodle doo. Good day to you, sir. I'm glad we got John Candy, even if it was for less than five minutes. So now we're at Angola Penitentiary mm-hmm. to speak to Kevin Bacon. I'm sure you have his real name. Like I said, Willie O'Keefe isn't a real character from history, but he is an amalgamation of Perry Russo and a couple of other male sex workers. That's why he's in Angola is because of prostitution. Ferry introduced him to Clay Bertrand. Exactly. And this is what, because Bill... Bill is an investigator, Michael Rooker, that is. Uh, He seems to have a lot of different connections as far as the investigation goes. Like, he's the one that's constantly bringing the names. Yeah. And this will become relevant later. I just wanted to put that out there. I hope so, because I have questions. Yeah, O'Keefe was introduced to Clay Bertrand for sexual purposes, because Clay Bertrand is a supposed homosexual. And in the summer of 63... 
O'Keefe tells them that he was at a party at David Ferry's house. And you know, your space is your mind. He's got mice in cages everywhere because he's working on a cure for cancer. And he's got stacks of papers as high as the ceiling. And uh, everybody's getting really drunk and starting to discuss really dangerous fucking political notions because David Ferry can't keep his opinions to himself. No, yeah, this is where they start first putting together the supposed plot to kill Kennedy. And like, I love Kevin Bacon doing this accent. He always wanted to be a priest, but they defracted him because he was queer. Oh, God. <laughs> like, I just love the way he talks. And that's where you met Oswald for the first time. Yeah, strange guy. Dave introduced him. Really, why don't you say hello to Leon Oswald? Hey, how you doing, man? What the fuck is he doing here? Well, fuck you, motherfucker. Okay, okay, come on, come on, come on. Leon's in a bad mood. Don't get excited. He's all right. You said that this Leon was actually Lee Harvey Oswald. Fuck yeah. Hey, man, I got no reason to lie to you. I'm already in jail. At this party, O'Keefe says he was introduced to Lee Harvey Oswald by David Ferry as Leon. Leon. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm using finger quotes. <laughs> I got no reason to lie to you. I'm already in jail. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> he says... He, two Cubans, Clay Bertrand, David Ferry, and Leon, Lee Harvey Oswald, are all listening to Ferry rant about how Kennedy fucked their anti-Castro campaign. Uh. They're talking about killing Castro, but then they start talking about killing Kennedy once the Cubans start complaining about Kennedy himself. Mm -hmm. Ferry says, I will kill him myself. I'll stab him right in his fucking heart. Somebody's got to get rid of this fucker. <laughs> oh, my won't, God. Won't be long. Mark my words. That fucker will get what's coming to him. No, this is incredible because as Garrison and Broussard are listening to this, I can see them on camera getting more and more frazzled. Like, yeah. It's going further and further off the rails for them. They think that if they can get Kennedy out of the way, they can take down Castro, which okay. is just kind of silly to me. I die. And then the theory starts, of course, to put together the conspiracy scenario in which Kennedy is killed in the open air. Ferry starts describing how it needs to work. Yeah, a diversionary shot to get the Secret Service to look another way, and then they actually kill him. That's the key. The diversionary shot gets the Secret Service looking other way. Boom, you get the kill shot. Crucial thing is one man has to be sacrificed. Then in the commotion of the crowd, the job gets done. The others fly out of the country to some place with no extradition. And O'Keefe says that when they got the FBI got Ferry the first time, it made him really scared. And he's like, you, when he goes, you're a goddamn liberal, Mr. Garrison. You don't know shit because you never been fucked in the ass. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why are you telling us this? Because that motherfucker, Kennedy, stole that motherfucking election. That's why. Nixon was going to be one of the great presidents till Kennedy wrecked this country. Got niggas all over the place asking for their damn rights. Why do you think we got all this crime now? He promised those motherfuckers too goddamn much, you ask me. Revolution's coming. Bullshit, man. Fascism is coming back. Fascism is coming back chills me to the bone. Where are we, Carrie? I understand that. In the rise of fascism. I just can't listen to any of his dialogue because he immediately oh, follows it up. No, listen. He immediately follows it up with anti-black sentiments, saying that Kennedy promised black people too many rights and that he was not down with that. And I'm sorry, that's what's so difficult about listening to that rhetoric is that, and what people are so uncomfortable with. Two things can be true. Yeah, fascism may have been on the rise, but also shut the fuck up with the anti-black sentiment. <laughs> and Garrison's like, 
okay, I've heard enough from you. You have a good rest of your day. No, if I was Garrison, I'd be walking away from that conversation thinking, well, at least I can write off the gas mileage. Fucking Willie. You're a good looking man, Mr. Garrison. <laughs> if I ever come out of here, I'm gonna come see you. We're gonna have some fun. Willie, stop. I know. Literally, Willie, sit down. Garrison really needs the identity of Clay Bertrand. And this is where we embark on probably the longest scene in part one. I hate it. Where all the associate DAs and investigators get together at this fancy restaurant in New Orleans to discuss the case. I wrote dinner with the old gang. We're, you know, we're looking at unpublished air quote photos of these hobos that were supposedly being shopped around Dealey Plaza to distract the Dallas police officers from the motorcade. And so we consider that testimony from Lee Bowers about what he witnessed in the rail yard behind the grassy knoll. What about that railroad man, Lee Bowers? Saw those men at the picket fence? Graveyard dead. August this year, single car accident on empty road in Midlothian, Texas. The doctor said he was some kind of strange shock when he died. Doesn't matter anymore. He's dead. Yep. And then another woman, the woman from the very beginning who was being shown thrown out of the car. Rose Shamarie? Rose Sheremy. Okay, thank you. She's dead from a hit and run. Mm. So no use for her either. And, you know, Billy says, why don't we just go see Jack Ruby? He's <laughs> rotting away in a Dallas prison. Because like, that will hit the presses the moment after Garrison leaves. And then Susie has all the Oswald intel, right? Background on his life, on his military training. She couldn't get his tax returns. Just his grammar school records. And that's unheard of. Why are his tax records classified in, for for matters of national security? Like, she combs through the CIA files that were a part of the Warren report. He was a lonely kid. His father abandoned them. He joins the Marines at 17 to get away from his mother. He learns Russian. He's overtly Marxist. He was stationed at a top-secret airbase in Japan. Like, Ross, I can't type fast enough. I know. And, like, <laughs> when he's discharged from the Marines, he supposedly goes home because his mother is sick. And then, I love this line, with a $1,500 ticket from a $203 bank account, he goes to Moscow in the Soviet Union and defects from the United States. <laughs> well, he's supposedly with the KGB, which is Russia's CIA, mm-hmm. you know? But he never writes, speaks, or does any propaganda for the Russians. He meets Marina, whose uncle is a colonel in Soviet intelligence, at a trade union dance. She thinks he's Russian by the way he speaks. Six weeks later, they marry, have a daughter. The only explanation for the royal treatment can be that he did give them radar secrets or fake secrets. But, like, he is miraculously allowed to come back, get his American passport back, and come back to the United States without a single thing happening to him. There's absolutely no punishment for Lee Harvey Oswald for defecting from the United States. Which, listen, to a person who believes that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, look at me. Explain that. I'm aware. I'm aware. (laughs) Explain that. Now, he never did any propaganda for the Russians while he was over there, but he was taken care of financially. Yeah, no, Ross, people have been denied re-entry to the U.S. for less. He married Marina Prushkova. She was the daughter of a Soviet colonel. Uh... They have a child, and like I said, little to no trouble coming back to America. Marina is allowed to come back as well. Susie goes, you get blacklisted in this country for having leftist affiliations, and they 
did nothing to Oswald. And so he works it. He, he comes back and works for six months at this company that's contracted to make maps for the army. Mm. Very suspiciously. And with the assistance of former FBI man, George DeMornschild, he is associated with Michael and Ruth Payne. They are for some reason referred to as Bill and Janet Williams mm. in this movie. They, they both have family ties to the CIA and Michael Payne worked for Bell Helicopter. It stinks! A defense contractor, Bell Helicopter. It absolutely stinks! It's Ruth Payne that got him the job at the Texas School Book Depository. And Ross, as much as I never, I, like, guys, I try not to go down rabbit holes of conspiracy. I try to leverage all existing facts with possible explanations for those facts. But that's the lunacy of this movie, is that it makes you go down these rabbit holes. Marina Oswald was very much buried her husband with the public after the assassination happened. She was sequestered for two months with the feds. Oh, no. In they the, taught her what to say, most likely. In the movie, when they film her, she looks like a hostage behind the eyes. I'm like, girl, blink twice if you need help. She's terrified of being deported with American children and no concrete reason to stay there. Yeah. And so they probably made things very comfortable for her. And now Garrison is saying, up front and center, we are not dealing with an actual defector here. He was a CIA operative. I would like to thank the Warren Commission. Oswald was no angel, that's clear. But who was he? I'm lost, boss. What are we saying here? We're saying that when Oswald went to Russia, he was not a real defector. That he was an intelligence agent on some kind of mission for our government and remained one till the day he died. That's what we're saying. They performed a nitrate test on him. He did not test positive for any gunpowder residue, meaning that he probably didn't even shoot a rifle that day, and that his prints were not at all on the rifle, mm. which I don't know if that's true. Well, I think what Garrison says is they weren't present at the time they performed the test. <laughs> well, they sent it to the FBI, Bill. FBI didn't find a goddamn thing. All of a sudden, the, a Dallas policeman finds a palm print. Yeah, Garrison, uh, I think, proffers that they planted the handprint after Oswald was dead. <laughs> There's no chain of evidence. I never could figure out why this guy orders a traceable weapon to this post office box when he goes into any store in Texas give a phony name and walk out with a rifle which can never be traced. To frame him, obviously. There's a lot of smoke there, but there's some fire. And then Wayne Knight, there's a lot of smoke there, but there's some fire. I'm with Wayne Knight, and I literally never thought I would have to utter that sentence. Like, there's just too much there. I don't buy all of these faked photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald they're proffering here at this meeting. They're literally editing Gary Oldman's face into it, so See, I... See, that's what's problematic about this film, is that in order to make that photograph look real, they actually do have to cut and paste Gary Oldman's face onto Lee Harvey Oswald's body. I looked at the real photograph. It's not as fishy as they make it look in the movie. No, that's a real photograph of him with that rifle. Like, I get it. The, the shadows look funny. It's not... It, that part does not stink enough. Lee Harvey Oswald ordered that Italian manlicker Carcano. He did it under a fake name, Alex Heidel, but that rifle belonged to Lee Harvey Oswald. He took it with him to work on Friday, November 22nd. 
But if you were going to kill the president, why not just walk into a gun shop where you could give a fake name and have it be untraceable? His friend who gave him a ride to work that day is still alive and was like, yeah, he had it wrapped up. Have I mentioned I hate this case? Yes. <laughs> and all of the conflicting information. And then we go into the Dealey Plaza analysis itself. We have all these witnesses talking with Garrison about where they were, where they heard shots coming from. People did actually see a rifle in the sixth floor window of the Texas School Book Depository. It's, of course, where the rifle is located. People say they saw smoke and heard gunshots coming from the grassy knoll area in front of Kennedy. There was a man who was watching the whole incident from atop a building on the other side of a plaza, had a full bird's eye view, and said he saw people run up the grassy knoll to see where all of the smoke was coming from. And I think what's most significant about this scene is a majority of witnesses that Garrison is interviewing are saying, listen, I told the police this, I told the FBI this or whatever, and the thing that's suspicious is that they were immediately detained, and as they're giving their testimony, the authorities are telling them, no, that's not what you saw. How many shots did you say you heard? Four to six. That's impossible. You heard echoes. Echoes. We have three bullets and three shots that came from the book depository. That's all we're willing to say. No, sir. I saw a man shooting from over there behind that fence. Now, what are you going to do about that? You got to go out there and get we it. We have that taken care of. You only heard three shots, and you're not to talk about this with anybody. This isn't true. Oh, it's not. This, this is not very—I I shouldn't say this isn't true. This isn't verifiable. Because you know the blonde lady he's speaking with? Mm -hmm. She's portraying Jean Hill. Jean Hill's an actual witness. And Jean Hill was very dissatisfied with her portrayal in this movie. Mm. You know how the character calls her Warren Report testimony a fabrication from start to finish? She did. That's what— actual Gene Hill says about this movie. Oh, the, the JFK, the movie She's is... She's like, I was not detained. <laughs> oh, okay. The, no man ever said to me, you didn't hear what you think you heard. Okay. All right. But this is Oliver Stone trying to establish his narrative. Irre-fucking-sponsible! I know, exactly. <laughs> you know, it rained that morning, and that one guy says they saw... Footprints. Footprints behind the fence on the grassy knoll, but also a lot of cigarette butts could be the smoke they saw. You're right. Yes. It, it didn't have to be smoke from a gun. It could have been smoke from cigarette. I and hate like this. And like the people that Lee Bowers saw back there in that rail yard. It didn't, it could have been just people panicking. And running from gunshots. Exactly. Oh God. Then we also have Julia Ann Mercer who's telling Garrison that she saw Jack Ruby in a truck at the assassination site the morning of the assassination. Now, isn't this what you called me about this morning? Yes, because I can't find that this Julia Ann Mercer person is real. I think she is real, but as far as Julia, it might be like Jean Hill. She might not agree that the way this film portrays um, her involvement in this as anything more than a fabrication. But, like, you think you would be able to see her name in the National Archives or something like that. I think her name does appear because when you get, when you go to her name on Wikipedia from the, from the movie, it takes you directly to the conspiracy theories page. All right. She says, and Then the next morning on Saturday, I went down to the FBI office and the agents showed me some photographs and I picked out three pictures that looked generally like the driver of the truck. That's the man. You mean you identified Jack Ruby on Saturday? That's right. The day before he shot Oswald? 
That's right. When I saw him on TV, I was shocked. I turned to my family and I said, that's the man I saw in the truck. We then see Lou and Garrison sitting down with a sex worker named Beverly Oliver. She's a showgirl. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I kind of love her, her platinum blonde hair and her cute pink dress. She's She and I would be friends. Because we got to talk about Jack Ruby a little bit. <laughs> the Dallas nightclub owner. So we all think, the world thinks Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK. Why the fuck would Jack Ruby then kill Lee Harvey Oswald? Mm, merits a follow-up. And the whole Ruby narrative is that he loved his country so much and he was such a supporter of President Kennedy and that he killed Lee Harvey Oswald because he believed it was justice. I don't think so. <laughs> Jack Ruby owned a nightclub called the Carousel Club in Dallas. The Carousel Club was a huge spot for Dallas Mafia. Uh-oh! And you know who the Kennedys really hated? <laughs> the Mafia. So why the fuck would Jack Ruby give a fuck about Kennedy? Exactly. Like, Jack Ruby was from Chicago, brought his mom connections down to Dallas, Texas. Now, and the thing about the Carousel Club, it was a place where not only the Mafia could hang out, but the Dallas police hung out a lot. I hate, I, I, guys, he, everybody was corrupt. Jack Ruby liked to be in the know because he was a middleman for the Dallas police and the mafia. Like he, he was a go-between. He had the best of both worlds in the, uh, in, in the most inelegant sense. You know what I'm saying? Beverly says the mafia were there. The Dallas police were there. Businessmen and politicians, LBJ's friends. <laughs> like she divulges that Jack Ruby introduced her to Lee Harvey Oswald. One time I came and Jack introduced me to these two guys. He says, Beverly, I'd like you to meet my friend Lee. I want you to meet my friend Lee Oswald. (laughs) I don't remember the other guy's name. But he was a weird looking guy. He had these eyebrows. (laughs) He kind of looked like a buzzard. (laughs) Well, Lee didn't make much of an impression. He was, um... Well, he really wasn't very good looking, and and he didn't look like he had any money. And and he was in a bad mood, so I I didn't pay him much mind. Why would Jack Ruby be claiming to Beverly Oliver to be friends with Lee Harvey Oswald? Exactly! If he's his... his, He killed him! Doesn't that fact trouble you as well? Jack Ruby was a violent-tempered man. Uh, He would like to throw the drunks out himself, is what Beverly says. Like, she also meets David Ferry. At the Carousel Club. The who, eyebrows. Who was with Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> he was a bizarre looking guy. He had these eyebrows. He kind of <laughs> looked like a buzzard. Will you testify, Beverly? I don't think so. No, I thought when we came here we had an agreement. <sighs> I don't want to become another statistic no, we like. We call you in, Beverly. We could call you in. If they can kill the president of the United States, do you think they're going to think twice about a two-bit showgirl like me? That's another thing that bothers me about this case, is that people associated with it... Dropped like flies. Dropped like flies by natural causes or... <laughs> air quote. Yeah, <laughs> air quote, or through, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, they punch their own ticket or otherwise, I'm not okay with that. That's too much for me. We see this sequence between Jack Ruby in jail and Chief Justice of the United States, Earl Warren, because he is the one chairing the Warren Commission and therefore the investigation, the government's investigation into the death of the president. 
And this is actually Jim Garrison talking to Brian Doyle Murray in this scene. Oh, really? Yeah, no, that's actually Jim Garrison. <laughs> oh, God. The, the, Mr. Ru- the, the deep voice guy. Ruby is telling Warren, the chief justice of the United States, that he cannot tell the truth there in Dallas. My life is in danger. If you request that I go back to Washington with you, that is, if you want to hear further testimony from me, can you do that? Can you take me with you? No, that could not be done. There would be no safe place for you. We're not law enforcement officers. Mr. Ruby, there's a great deal at stake in this matter. For some reason, Warren is insisting that that cannot be done. Why not? You're the federal government. (laughs) There would be no safe place for you. See, but again, another troubling fact, right? Jack Ruby died from an embolism in 1967 without ever talking. An embolism, huh? Yeah, there's a couple of embolisms that happen in this movie. Yeah. This scene where Garrison and Lou are in the book depository... At the very window where it supposedly happened. God, we're doing gun tests. It's necessary for the movie, but you guys, I promise you, it... Ma- this this doesn't make any sense how I put it. I promise you, it makes more sense than they're trying to make it sound like it doesn't. <laughs> uh... FBI tried two sets of tests. Not one of their sharpshooters could match Oswald's performance. Not one. And Oswald was at best a medium shot. The scope was defective on it, too. I mean, this is the whole essence of the case to me. The guy couldn't do the shooting. Nobody could. And they sold this lemon to the American public. Remember, they keep claiming that Oswald wasn't a great shot because they're discussing the layout of the plaza and how this shooting took place in six seconds and no man could have feasibly done it. The thing is, guys, we're going to go through all we're going to go over all of this in part two. So we're going to save the finer points of this conversation. Okay, I'll button my yap. I just because like there are points in that scene that I agree with. They're trying to recreate this scenario to get the timing correctly, and it's just not adding up for them guys i promise you it really does add up better in reality than they're making it sound i can't wait to hear about it in part two they're what they're trying to do is set up the crux of the conspiracy which is how it needs to happen to suit stone's narrative all right it is determined by bill that clay bertrand is an alias used by businessman clay shaw a prominent new orleans businessman he was the director of the dallas trademark the very place Kennedy was due to speak the day that he was murdered. Huh. Yeah. He's also rumored to be former CIA and is a homosexual, which I guess goes hand in hand for some reason. I know. D- and this is going to be held against him. Of course. Like, no, the way the homosexuality is held against the suspects. Mainly David Ferry and Clay Bertrand. Yeah, like, it's it's not that the homosexuality isn't relevant to how they met and how they were associated. It's the way that it is demonized and used against them as a quality of their character. Like, guys, gays can be bad people, too. They're not bad people because they're gay. Have I been clear? Yes. Okay. At Garrison's home, Susie is reporting that someone was using Oswald's name to purchase trucks for an organization called Friends of a Democratic Cuba, because they were running guns, right? Remember, they were running all the guns. Right. And the incorporator of Friends for a Democratic Cuba was Guy Bannister. 
You don't say. I do say. <laughs> I do say. Speak on it, I guess. <laughs> and, and like, oh, all the fake photographs. And Garrison says, <laughs> the Warren Commission went to huge lengths to label Oswald as a communist. As, you know, is it as if a defector to the Soviets who is pro-Castro can come back to America and murder the president. It would justify an invasion of Cuba somehow. That's their working crux for this conspiracy. Goddamn, they put Oswald together from day one. Like some dummy corporation in the Bahamas. You just move them around a board. Anybody want to quit? I uh, dumb question, put your hands down. Does anybody want to quit? <laughs> anybody want to quit? And everybody raises their hand. No, it's terrible. Put your hands down. Put your hands down. <laughs> and Bill shows up to announce that Clay Bertrand is Clay Shaw, and they decide they're going to need to get Clay Shaw in for an interview at their office, which for <laughs> some reason has to happen on Easter Sunday, and Liz is super upset about it. No, this is because Jim Garrison is not paying attention. He's only focused on this case. He has practically forgotten that he has a wife and five children. You are not being careful. <laughs> exactly. And you are missing, missing it. it. <laughs> no, she's like, I can't believe this had to happen on Easter friggin' Sunday. Well, why in the world did you do it in the middle of Easter Sunday? Because when I scheduled it, I didn't realize it was a holiday. Say, Sonny, look at the calendar. Why didn't you say you something? You said, hey, Sonny, not Easter Sunday. Clay Shaw's important. We're not. I didn't say that, Liz. <laughs> I didn't say that. And he blows her off he's like i'll be it i'll be at lunch later okay and guess what guys it doesn't happen because he goes to this meeting with clay shaw i have to not refer to him as claw shaw because <laughs> the, the autocorrect corrected me every time it corrected it to claw shaw but he goes to this meeting with clay shaw and i'll give it to clay shaw He's cool as a cucumber for the first part. Tommy Lee Jones. Well, in an investigation we're conducting, your name has come up a number of times. I wouldn't imagine where. We've recently talked to a number of men who claim to know you. Are you acquainted with David Logan? Uh, no, never heard of him. A Perry Russo? No. A Willie O'Keefe? No, I don't believe I know anyone by that name. Perry Russo's name is mentioned, but he's not portrayed in this film, which I find interesting because Perry Russo is the male sex worker associated with Clay Shaw. Shaw is denying knowing Perry Russo, Willie O'Keefe, or David Ferry at all. And while he is denying everything, we are seeing uh, really weird shit. Like, oh no. Garrison. Are we here? Garrison. Yeah, Carrie. <laughs> we're here. Because Garrison is interrogating him about a gathering that Clay Shaw supposedly had with Willie O'Keefe, Perry Russo, and David Ferry, in which they engage in colorful sex acts. And by the way, when we say weird, the weird part is the- Joe Pesci dominating Tommy Lee Jones. Yes, that's what we mean. When we, it's, it's not the gay shit. It's the Joe Pesci dominating Tommy Lee Jones. I don't like listening to Joe Pesci asking Tommy Lee Jones if he's his little bitch. Like... <laughs> strangest part the strangest part is that they playing dress up they are all in 18th century regency dress they're in drag they're literally in drag <laughs> ross i need you to look at my notes <laughs> do you see where i just started mashing the keyboard <laughs> doing keyboard mash <laughs> so it's not pleasant guys it's not. 
that. Oh my God. And when he's asked about the name Clay Bertrand, he pretends not to know anything about it, even though it's his alias. And Garrison gets down to the fundamental question for Clay Shaw. Mr. Shaw, can you identify this man? Naturally. Are you claiming, Mr. Garrison, that Mr. Oswald also had dinner with me? Mr. Shaw, have you ever met Lee Harvey Oswald? You really have me consorting with a sordid cast of characters. Please answer the question. Of course not. Garrison says, hey, I know you're connected to a CIA front company from Italy, which is a link to a tool company in Louisiana, which provided guns for David Ferry in Operation Mongoose. And like, Bert, and like Clay is like, listen, if I was an operative for the CIA, why would I even come here? And if I were, Mr. Garrison, do you believe I would be here today talking to somebody like you? No. People like you don't have to, I guess. May I go? People like you, they just walk between the raindrops. Echo. Yes. The tapping of the cigarette out. The, the way he fussily puts out that cigarette and just then wishes, sends me. And then wishes them a happy Easter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Almost there, guys. Almost there. The next day, word is out about Jim Garrison's investigation of the death of President Kennedy. And you know what? I've got to question Jim's uh, decision-making on this point, because how did he think that he would bring Clay Shaw in for questioning and have the media not immediately tipped off? It's because he poked the money bag. I, well, like, but he knew that he was the money bag. That's the thing. How did he, he already said, let's not go to Jack Ruby because then it will will immediately be in the press. Mm -hmm. How did he not think that Clay was going to do the exact same thing? And his office is swarmed by reporters from all over the world. (laughs) Which is impressive in a pre-internet world. Lou gets a call, doesn't he, Carrie? (laughs) Dave Ferry is back. (laughs) Joe Pesci doing what he does best, which is swear. Did you all first plant that garbage in a fucking paper? Who's this? You know exactly who the fuck this is. Dave? Yeah, you got it. Listen, since you're the only straight shooter in that fucking office, I'd like a fucking answer from you. Did you plant it? Dave, you think we're out of our minds? The whole building's been a zoo since that broke. We can't get a thing done. Reporters crawling everywhere. You think we want that? Because all of these reporters are out in front of Dave... Fairy's house and he's calling Lou from a payphone going, fuck you, you've ruined my life again. <laughs> no, like Lou tells him, okay, we're going to meet in this hotel. <laughs> Joe Pesci, I am a dead man, a dead man. Do you get it? David Ferry obviously has something to do with this, or he would not be calling Lou Ivan this way. Oh, no. Lou says, listen, dude, calm down. Let's meet in this hotel. You, me, and Jim, we're going to talk about this. And Ferry is manic. This wig. It's so far forward. On his forehead. And (laughs) he is in this hotel room with Lou and Jim talking at the speed of light while also trying to tear the hotel room down to the studs looking for bugs. Exactly. He's feel he's patting them all down. Hey, what's this? Don't be writing none of this down. <laughs> when room service comes, he's like, what is this? What's going on? And Jim's like, it's just the coffee. It's just the coffee, <laughs> Dave. Did you ever work for the sky? You make it sound like some remote fucking experience in ancient history. Man, you don't leave the agency. Once you're in you, they got you for life. Shaw? Shaw? Shaw's an untouchable, highest clearance. Shaw, Oswald, the Cubans, all agency. 
Ross, I can't even make sense of anything he's saying. So basically what Fairy divulges to Garrison and Lou, air quote, off the record, is that it is all connected and that Shaw is a key. It's basically, uh, in his own manic way, confirming to Garrison that he's on the right track. It's almost Fairy's way of showing remorse for what has transpired, I guess. Uh, I don't feel it, though. No, I wouldn't go that far. And so when Garrison and Lou are trying to press him for more concise, clear answers, he just fucking loses his mind. No, the thing is, for me, if he's so concerned about being discovered as consorting with Garrison and his crew, why is he screaming? This is too fucking big for you, you know that? This is... Who did the president? Who killed Ken? Fuck, man! It's it's a mystery! It's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma! The fucking shooters don't even know! Don't you get it? Fuck, man! I can't keep talking like this! You're gonna fucking kill me! I'm gonna fucking die! Even though I don't like him, I am... I am Dave Ferrier personified in this uh, moment. All of the information we've gotten in this part one, I don't know who's telling the truth. <laughs> Even the shooters don't know, man. <laughs> Fuck. Shit. Yeah, I'm exhausted. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't trust anybody. I don't trust anybody. I know, I know. And you shouldn't. It you is, really shouldn't. It's frustrating. Garrison's like, listen. It's going to be okay, Dave. You just talk to us on the record. We'll protect you. I guarantee it. They'll get to you, too. They'll destroy you. They're untouchable, man. I'm so fucking exhausted, I can't see straight. And guys, that is our halfway point for Oliver Stone's JFK. We're halfway there. And so, guys, you're going to have to tune in next week for part two. And it's, ah, that's where the meat is. We've got the potatoes. Now we need the meat. I hate it. Carrie. I hate it. Come on. Can't you be just a little happy for me? No. Happy for you. And I get to do this. Happy for you. Absolutely not. Guys, I love this movie. I know it's infuriating and irresponsible, but I still love the drama. I think that's part of my frustration with you right now. Okay, Because right. you are so diehard. Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. None of your conspiracy bullshit. little concrete evidence to the contrary. And then... I get excited about this. Yes. I know. <laughs> I know. Harrison, if you're listening, and I know you are, I'm going to send you the link when this comes out. I know I have bitched and moaned that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, but this movie raises some really good questions. <gasps> and guys, there are things that happened in reality that are verifiable fact that are still huge red flags. Yes! And not just a part of Oliver Stone's film. As like, Wayne Knight once said, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's smoke there. There's smoke there. But there's some fire. And I get, guys, I guess next week we're going to be talking about the fire. Uh, yeah, we're gonna, we have the smoke. Now we're going to... JFK Part 2, fire. Stop. JFK Part 1, smoke. I hate this movie. Uh, you I, don't hate this movie. I kind of do, actually. You know but... what? I'll do part two by myself. <laughs> You'll do part two by yourself? Yeah. It'll just be you talking <laughs> at them. It'll just be me talking to the audience. <laughs> Guys, do you love me? Did you listen to the whole thing? <laughs> if you didn't, I get it. Uh, so look out for that next week, guys. 
In the meantime, you can go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show if you want with your alternative theories of the assassination of JFK at Kicking and Streaming Podcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet. Folks, we want everyone to come and join our little watch party. More quality content coming to you from Kicking and streaming. Until then, I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And as always, sorry, sorry mom. mom.